My guest today is Takeru Nagiyoshi, the 2020 Massachusetts Teacher of the Year and someone who is no longer in the teaching profession. Uh, Takeru, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Blake. So I want to hear uh, about why you became a teacher, about what made you leave teaching. These are questions that you've actually already uh, done a lot of explaining uh, in, in other formats online. Uh, and so mm -hmm. let's start Let's start a little bit farther back. Can you tell us a bit about your childhood, your educational path? What, what eventually led you to the classroom? Yeah, for sure. I, I just want to start off first by saying, Blake, that I love your name, Blake Bowles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just always yeah, down for like you. an alliterative name. It just reminds me of a lot of uh, superhero characters. So I just wanted to put that out there. And yes, you got my name totally correct, Takeru. Uh, and then I also go by TK, by the way. Um, but yeah, my childhood and, and, and how it led me to my education. I was born and raised in the States, New Jersey. Uh, my mom worked at the UN. And so uh, she would take us to the United Nations International School in New York City. Uh, and then when I was around nine, uh, I want to say I moved to Japan. Uh, and there, uh, for about five years, up until eighth grade, uh, I experienced a full Japanese public school education. Uh, and then uh, I moved back to the States um, around my ninth grade, eighth grade uh, high school beginning years, uh, and then spent the rest of my high school uh, in a suburb in New Jersey. And so I'd like to think I have like a very eclectic view on the education, uh, even just from like a lived experience perspective, uh, having been at a private school in New York, a public school in Japan, a public school in the States, in urban environments and uh, more suburban environments in different countries. Uh, I went to college uh, in Rhode Island uh, at a private school. And then uh, after college, uh, I was just unsure about what I wanted to do. And so uh, I joined uh, the teaching profession through a program right, called Teach for America. Uh, and I was placed in a school in New Bedford, Massachusetts. It's in the south coast of, of, of Massachusetts. Uh, and New Bedford, also a very interesting school where we are a low income, a high needs turnaround district uh, where the state took over um, the school system and the district itself because of its underperformance. Uh, and I was there for seven years. Um, and so that is kind of my education background in a nutshell. Okay. And let's go back to your K through 12 experience. And yeah. I, I'm often most interested in people's middle school and high school experiences. I feel like mm. elementary school, uh, it, it can go well, it can go poorly, but I think for most people, it goes, it goes fairly okay, if, if not well. Yeah. And then the, the real juicy stuff comes when we get thrown into the, the middle school or junior high environments and, and moving on to high school. So what was your experience like as a student? I guess we're talking about both your time in Japan and then in New Jersey. Uh, did, did you have positive experiences? Were you a, a, a high achieving student? Did you have friends? <laughs> oh, I didn't have any friends, Blake. I was alone the whole time. It happens um, to some I, of us. <laughs> I know. I, I appreciate you asking that question, right? Middle school, high school is such a formative time in how we view the world and what we want for to be true to ourselves. Uh, and I actually struggled a lot in middle school, uh, at least in the traditional academic sense. Um, by the time I was in seventh grade, uh, and this is in Japan, Nagoya, Japan, 
uh, I was so academically floundering that, you know, they have this practice where they literally rank all of the kids. Um, so, you know, exactly what your academic standing is in comparison to your peers. And I remember around my seventh grade, second, third semester, I was 150 out of 160. Uh, I was almost not going to classes at that point. I really struggled in algebra and math, and I hated my math teacher at the time, so I did oftentimes skip second period class. Um, and it was just one of those academically soul-crushing experiences that made me internalize at the time that school wasn't for me. You know, I, I started hanging out with the, the quote-unquote wrong crowd, uh, as they can be uh, in middle well, school. Well, and, what kind of wrong crowd? There's so many potential, you know, wrong oh, crowds. You know, the school skipping, smoking behind the school building, you know, kind of bullying type of group of kids where okay. we were the anti sort of, uh, especially in a school, uh, you know, system like Japan, where everything is so conformist and we have to wear uniforms and can't put gel in our hair and have to wear the right color shoes. I was very much against all of those conventions um, and, and, you know, found my little group and crowd of, as, as a way to reject that. And so um, I'd say middle school, uh, socially okay. Uh, I, I, I didn't have that much trouble interacting with other kids. And, you know, despite even having been born in the States uh, and, and, and readjusting uh, culturally to the Japanese culture, um, but academically uh, really in a tough spot. And, and as adult, right, I could sort of look back on that experience and, and understand that it was because, well, uh, I was a Japanese language learner. And so even though I looked the part and I spoke the language, when it came to the academic and formal language and, and also navigating, right, the school system there, mm -hmm. I, I did struggle uh, much more. Um, yeah, and so that was that's kind of how I was like um, in, in in Nagoya, Japan, and and it wasn't until I moved back uh, to the states, um, I, I started going to a, a suburban school uh, in New Jersey, and it was a public uh, high school, uh, obviously an American school, uh, and so I had this five year hiatus in my English experience, uh, but I had a lot of really great teachers, um, and I think the the learning style in America just kind of worked better for me. Uh, I don't want to get too much into stereotypes, but I think Japanese education systems, there is this sentiment philosophy of, you know, the nail that sticks out, you know, gets hammered the mm -hmm. most, mm -hmm. you know, something along those lines. And, you know, when you think about like very traditional industrial model schools where kids are wearing uniforms, where they're all in grid lines, they only talk when the teacher lets them talk. That was very much, you know, the kind of educational environments that I didn't, you know, personally do well in. I always wanted to ask random questions or deviate uh, in a different direction. And I think a lot of teachers saw that as being uh, disrespectful or not taking things too seriously. And I think an American school system, uh, while still very much predicated on those industrial models, still uh, encouraged a little bit more play, definitely encouraged more individual input and thought. Uh, I was very much surprised at the emphasis on like, what are your thoughts? Right. And, and, and how can <laughs> you show up? Right. And, and tell us what you're thinking in your essays that felt so different uh, from what I've experienced. And so it was from there that I started to see schoolwork as something that isn't too different from me. Um, and to speak to the social elements, Blake, because I know you asked about the friend stuff. Like, yes, you know, I have just moved from Japan, uh, you know, 
being in the cool crowd um, to after a five year hiatus in English, moving to the States as this, you know, five foot four gay Asian kid who was in the closet. Um, and like, let's be real, right? If you're in an American school where folks are predominantly white, the axis of cool, I'd like to joke, oftentimes has shifted. Uh, and so <laughs> I was finding myself like not enjoying the same sort of social clout that I've enjoyed when I was in Nagoya, Japan, uh, which in turn allowed me to focus more on my academics. And so that kind of put me on this trajectory and path towards uh, becoming successful. Academically, okay. at least. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. This is fascinating. So so in high school, you found your footing academically, but you sort of uh, struggled socially, which reinforced the academic performance. And uh, and, and that was that was it? That's everything that, that happened in high school? Like, did, did, did you discover I mean, a deep love of, of a certain subject? Or, or yes. think I did you were you already thinking I want to become a teacher like I want to do something differently than I see the teachers around me doing? Right, right, right. Okay, here's the other thing about American schools that I really liked. We were very abundant in uh, extracurriculars, and, and yes. yes, Japanese schools have that as well. But um, I fell in love with debate. I really fell into and found my social niche. Um, just I was that typical overachiever who. <laughs> Um, was the president of every club, was, you know, the, the, the captain and leader of my debate team and just found a channel and almost like an entrepreneurial uh, work ethic around uh, extracurriculars in a way that also tied with my academics. And so that was very much the kind of persona and, and I think personality mm -hmm. that I had uh, as, as a high school kid. Mm -hmm. um, and to your other question about, you know, becoming a teacher, like, absolutely not. Like, I hated school, like, in middle school. Uh, I think my teachers would be spinning uh, if they are dead in their graves right now. <laughs> uh, and then in high school, I, I'm still in, in contact with a lot of my uh, high school teachers, and, and they're very, very proud of me having become a teacher. But I would have never, right, wanted to relive, right, my high school years uh, as an adult. And so, uh, like I said uh, earlier, it was because of, of, of Teach for America and and prior to being, uh, I, I went to a school where there were just a lot of recruiters um, and I was recruited uh, to join the profession and it kind of aligned with how I was developing in terms of how I saw the world. TFA has this uh, equity, educational equity lens through which they look at the impact that uh, an individual teacher can make. Uh, and that was really compelling to me. Uh, and given how I had a very interesting up and down relationship with school and uh, how I was drawn to a lot of social justice language and activism language and how teaching in and of itself can be thought of it through that lens was deeply appealing. Um, mm -hmm. And I was also working on my thesis at the time. It was super busy. And so I was like, you know, what? I'll try this thing called DFA, uh, see if I like it. Uh, and I loved it. Right. I loved the craft of teaching. Um, and and I stayed beyond my two years of my commitment. Yeah, yeah, which is, I believe, not a, a very common thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we can just dwell in your your college years for a moment before we press yeah. forward into your teaching career, uh, TK, you're doing that thing that that people who go to Harvard do, where they say, "I went to college in a certain area," with a kind of <laughs> a, a wink, wink. Uh, since it's public uh, on the internet, you went to Brown and yes. you studied international relations. And mm -hmm. I mean, tell me about that. Uh, 
did you think you were going to go into some field related to international relations and then sort of got swept away by the, the promise of TFA? I, I don't know. I mean, I think we tend to do what we know, right? And I, I remember seeing some statistic of like, especially in education, for instance, right? You're more likely to become a teacher if your parents or family members were educators. And, you know, my mom, I mentioned, worked at the UN. And so um, it's funny. I studied international relations. My brother was poli-sci. My sister was foreign relations. And so we kind of went towards things that uh, I think just was part of the family culture and dynamic. Uh, and I say that with this understanding that like, it's not that IR, right? Uh, or foreign policy and all of that inherently drew to me, but it just felt like a familiar and safe choice. Mm-hmm. You know, I was also mm-hmm. like a child of where 9-11 was a big thing, where the Iraq war was a big thing. And so it felt like this important thing to do. I think from an academic standpoint though, uh, what studying something like that did was give me a very interdisciplinary understanding of how history and political science and economy and anthropology and sociology all mix. Uh, And it gave me a sociological lens to sort of view the world, Mm. which very much aligned with with what education is, right? And mm-hmm. and and even if we understand how education and, and the politics surrounding education is such a microcosm of this broader um, set of, of other disciplines. Yes. And so when I think of the teacher that I became and the kind of ways in which I excelled as both a teacher and a teacher of the year, whose job was essentially to break down what's happening in the K-12 education world, um, I think I have that lens uh, to credit for. Great. And we're going to spend time dwelling on these bigger questions of, of education and, and what it means and why, why nice. it's important. Um Tell me about your seven years in the classroom. Uh, I, I'm, I'm most curious in just what your day-to-day reality was like, because for me personally, my last you know direct contact with high school classrooms uh, was when I was in high school myself. And so I, I'm locked in the 90s here. And, and so I'm out of touch, yet here I am with a, an education podcast. And so w- what was it like and, and what years specifically were you teaching? Yeah, thank you. Um, 2014 to 2021. And so I was also a pandemic time educator as well. Uh, And to give you a bit context about my school, uh, again, uh, I worked uh, in New Bedford at a traditional public school. Uh, It was a turnaround school. And so the state took it over because we had historically low um, graduation rates, uh, standardized test scores. Uh, and when we say that the state takes over, it, it, it just is a fancy way of saying um, actually a lot of reform and changes. Uh, part of that change was having teachers from programs like TFA come in, uh, changes obviously in the leadership, a real great emphasis on uh, aligned standards uh, and ways of teaching when it came to uh, uh, practices that are evidence and research based, uh, a, a release in funding and so that there were more opportunities for students. And so by the time that I joined that that school community, uh, it was both uh, a time of disruption and uh, I think, especially from the lens and view of the veteran teachers, uh, hesitation, you know, because they have been running their community and schools in a certain way. And all of a sudden there are a lot of these changes and I represented that kind of difference and change there. and then as a community, right, uh, we are, you know, all free and reduced lunch. We're a Title I school. Um, 
we are what's known as a gateway city, the city of New Bedford, and that's characterized as uh, a city that, you know, back in the more industrial uh, times of our country uh, was socioeconomically thriving, right? New Bedford at one point by, you know, Herman Melville was named as like the city that, that lit the world, right? As a whaling port and city. Mm -hmm. um, but as the socioeconomic demographics shifted, um, there were, you know, there was white flight, right? There were also just a lot of other immigrant communities coming in and the schools themselves had difficulty sort of addressing both the linguistic and political and socioeconomic needs of these new um, populations. Uh, and, and, and over time, right, uh, the city sort of uh, lost its, its, its shine and, and, and luster over the years. Uh, and so that's, you know, the context of New Bedford, at least when, when I joined um, and, and as I mentioned, I was supposed to be there for two years. Um, I was uh, English, AP English, uh, and research teacher there. So I taught AP Lit, uh, AP Seminar, and AP Research, which are these capstone uh, courses. I also taught uh, regular English uh, for 10th graders mostly. And, um, you know, your typical five classes, two to three preps, about 20 to 30 kids per class, and so 120 case load. Um, and you know, when we talk about the day-to-day, -day, like that day-to-day -day is a grind. You're, you're, you're sort of, I like to describe teaching when I talk to people who are outside of depression as like, there's this threat of a deadline, right? Uh, every day and you are on uh, <laughs> for a different audience and, and, and trying to meet their needs both academically, but as full people who bring their home life struggles and, 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 and challenges uh, into the classroom. Uh, meanwhile, you're grading and you're creating new content and you are uh, communicating with your family and going through the BS and, and politics of, of being an educator in general. And uh, it was a lot, right? And so, um, as fulfilling as it was and as exciting as it was, uh, it was also one that I think took a lot of energy away from me. Uh, and, and particularly when we went into the, the pandemic, I think I, a lot of that magic that I felt started to wean away. Hmm. I heard you speak on Howard Blumenthal's show and you, you gushed about how you got to have some really cool classes as a teacher. Uh, a phrase you used was independent, self-guided, project-based learning and you said that in your research class that you you had students write something that was akin to an undergraduate thesis over the entire year Is, can you tell me more about that because that sounds really interesting yeah yeah no no i do and, and i think it's like a good example of like deep learning initiatives right uh, so that was part of my ap seminar and ap research class um and i don't know blake if you had ap uh i, I had a few ap classes in high yeah, school yeah if you yeah I think the, the traditional, because I taught AP Lit, right? And I also took AP uh, classes in high school as well. Their model, right, is sort of what's problematic about learning, right, um, arguably, in that you study, study, study. It's about content acquisition and, and, and crystallizing knowledge. Um, and then you sort of regurgitate it on a test uh, on a given day, right? And so it's a snapshot of your learning in a very self-contained um, framework. Um, AP Capstone is different in that it's it's portfolio base, it is uh, performance base, it is um, formative, right? In its type of assessment that it does. And so basically uh, my students in that class, not only were learning research skills, uh, it was a class that was uh, created in response to college professors articulating what skills 
um, high school students are most lacking when it comes to college. Um, and it's around, you know, writing an academic paper, uh, using credible sources, justifying their claims, uh, being able to publicly speak. And so they took all of those elements and created essentially what's akin to uh, an undergraduate seminar class where kids spend an entire year investigating a topic of their interest and, and, and um, essentially write both a 2,000 to 5,000 word paper, depending on if you took uh, research or cat, uh, seminar, uh, and then do a multimedia presentation and, and, and answer a set of oral defense questions. And it just felt so much more authentic. And yes. um, yeah, like <laughs> understanding of like what learning is rather than this sort of canned, we say you regurgitate model that I think a lot of us are used to. And I, I would just love to dwell on this for another moment because I would have loved to have something like that in high school. Like I felt ready for it. I, I was often bored and disappointed by other classes and the, the typical pedagogical mm -hmm. approaches. Um, do you feel like, so this was an AP class. I assume there was, there was not a lot of students in it. They, they've been kind of uh, plucked from the crowd. Do you feel like that approach, this, this research-based approach, could have worked for, for more students? Um, yes, no. So we did have an open enrollment. Um, oftentimes uh, at a school like mine uh, at the time when kids couldn't take advantage of AP classes, this had very little to do with their um, skill set, but more just to do with life and home circumstances and the ability mm -hmm. to which they can prioritize school. And so even the kids who didn't do successfully in my class there were reflections of them either being absent all the time um, or just not having the kind of home structure that enabled them to take work home, right? And so I think there's that equity piece that I, I ultimately want to circle back to later on. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of making this kind of learning initiative standard, right, for all students. I think a lot of our students have, by the time they come to high school, internalized this idea that like demonstrating proficiency in learning in school is that quiz, test, essay format, uh, and, 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 and what a detriment, right? When we circumscribe what learning is to them in that manner. And what was interesting mm -hmm. about this sort of mm -hmm. capstone-based project is that A, uh, we inherently uplift their passions, their curiosities, right? Their own intellectual proclivities and allow them to use what we're doing in class as a vessel to uh, express that. Um, and then B, right, it is so much more than just what is uh, shown on a day that you take the test, but is verbal and oral in that you have to have these presentations mm -hmm. being done. It is social in the feedback work that we do, right? And it's formative. It is not just something that we uh, look at at the very end. Um, and so I, I do think that a lot of schools should lean into that. I know Massachusetts has this broader, deeper learning initiative. Um, that is very much aligned to this project-based learning model. Uh, and I do hope that that, that, that becomes more uh, part of the course. Hmm. I feel like you and I might be aligned in the, the belief that if, if school was just more enjoyable, that fewer kids would, would hate it, if fewer kids would want to get away, if just <laughs> things made more sense and it was less uh, forced learning, less regurgitation, less old school pedagogy, um, mm -hmm. there wouldn't be so much pushback against it. And, and more authentic, right? And like reflected yeah. in their lived experience, yeah. Yeah, and it sounds sure. like you you touched on that with with some of the work that you were you were doing there. Um, okay, so 
when we get into this this phase of, of your life, the, the pandemic phase, the burnout, the and the teacher of the year phase, which all sort of happened at the same time, it seems. Um, <laughs> again, this is something you've talked a lot about in, in other venues. I'm going to post links uh, to conversations you've had, including the one through which I discovered you on This American Life. Um, but can you just summarize for those listening what those few years were like, the, the nomination for Teacher of the Year, the pandemic, and, and what led you to leave the classroom? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Teacher of the Year was sort of a, a, a doozy. I was nominated by my uh, headmaster and they make you go through all these hoops. It's really kind of like pageantry. <laughs> um, in both in a good and a bad sense, but they are looking not for the best educators per se, but those who are a standard bearer. Um, and I think at the time, not only because of what I represented as an educator in a particular community, but given the results I was able to get in AP, uh, and also the ways in which I was able to speak to different education issues, um, I think those were sort of the culminating reasons behind why uh, I was named as the State Teacher of the Year. Uh, and what a wonderful, you know, set of years, I'd even say, because uh, I was technically named uh, publicly in 2019, uh, and then 2020 was when my year of service began. Uh, and so I've been doing a lot of uh, work and activities and engagements related to that even before the pandemic. Uh, and then once the pandemic happened, there was just this glut of interest in what teachers are doing, what's happening in the education world, what are our thoughts on George Floyd protests and the relevancy in the classroom to reopening and mask mandates? How does uh, remote and virtual learning look like? And what are the challenges that you're feeling? And so I became really proficient in uh, using my lived experience and, and, and the things that I've observed from my students and my colleagues and, and broadcasting that to uh, the public, right, uh, in a way that gave them an understanding of, of what's happening in the education world, also while, you know, uh, advocating and, and, and advancing what I think should be true uh, for the purpose of education. And it, it, and so I, I just felt like I was kind of living this dual life where on one hand, I'm excited about the profession and, and broadcasting all of its benefits and wonders and contributions, while also at the same time not feeling that myself in the classroom. Um, and I'm talking about, right, my pandemic time teaching. Um, and that was one of the worst, I think, uh, years of my education career, where so much of what made teaching inherently joyful for me, right, being part of a community, uh, seeing the impact of your work directly, um, understanding and, and, and feeling that magic of human friction in person was essentially lost. Uh, and on top of that, right, teachers were being asked to go above and beyond without any sort of increase in the pay or dignity that I think we should be afforded, right? We were being asked to essentially reinvent our entire curriculum and our content in a virtual format. Uh, I worked at a school that was um, co -con uh, concurrent in, in its teaching model, meaning that I had to both teach kids uh, virtually on a screen while also attending to kids simultaneously who were in my classroom as the most dystopian setup that you can ever think of. Um, and everyone was frustrated all the time. Yeah, like, you know, the, the virtual kids think I'm, I'm, I'm more attendant to the in-person kids and the in-person kids think I'm more attendant to the virtual kids. Oh Meanwhile, I am playing producer role and trying to avoid feedback loops in the conversation. And it was draining. And, and, and that's not even to mention the other small things that would crop up, like, you know, attendance, even amongst my colleagues were really low. And so every other day I would have to sub in uh, for these teachers. And 
you know, I share this story a lot, but one of the things that really made me feel not respected as an educator was, uh, at least in my school, right, uh, there is this practice of when you are asked to cover another person's class and your prep time is taken away, um, you are compensated, right, for that uh, hour. So that, you know, as, as a sort of additional labor that you do. And, and, and that particular year, I've had so many times that I had to cover for other teachers that I just never got into the uh, routine habit of submitting my paperwork on time. Um, and so long story short, I kind of bunched a lot of them and then send it over, right? Uh, I want to say 36 something hours of, of labor that I have done. Um, and in the past, when I do that, they'll be like, you know, totally fine. It's okay. Uh, and my final year of teaching, they told me, you know, no, you know, we're not going to compensate you for that, even though it was something that it will be done and have a record for. Mm. And, and I was like, wow, what a great, <laughs> the English yeah. teacher in me is like, what a great metaphor for what it means to be a teacher in the pandemic right now. Um, <laughs> Insult so much to more injury. Work. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Um, uh, something that I, I heard you say on a different interview, uh, talking about the, this burnout stage, is that if everyone needs self-care all of the time, it's no longer a, a self-issue. It, it's a systems issue. And, and that sounds like what you and, and your coworkers were, were facing. This, this Absolutely. You know, always needing self-care, never having enough time for it, covering it for each other's asses. And, yeah. and then at the end of the day, you don't even get paid for some overtime that you do. Yeah. Um, so what I want to know is if there was no pandemic, do you think you'd still be in the classroom right now? Ooh, good question. Um, I think right now I would still be in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I wanted to go back into the classroom this academic year, right? The 2021-2022 uh, school year. Um, and it wasn't until a friend who works at my current job uh, said, hey, I think this role would be great for you. And so I wasn't actively choosing on leaving the classroom. Um, yeah, I, I, in fact, I was thinking of this year being my redo year, which is also what I thought, you know, the first year after the pandemic. Um, but one of the tells for me was around August is when teachers are like looking through their curricula, thinking about what their year is going to look like. Uh, and typically for me, it's a ritual that I look forward to right with joy and excitement and i had so much anxiety and so mm. much trepidation and frustration and, and and that to me right was was a sign mm -hmm. that maybe i need to take a step back before i go back into this mm -hmm. um and, and that's what i did and that's a great analogy for teenagers who feel uh, dread and trepidation and anxiety when they think about going back to school mm. in, in the fall and uh, I sometimes uh, have the privilege of coaching families and, and teens who are like struggling in school and they're trying to figure out if they should take a, a very alternative pathway. And often it comes down to that question, which is just, you know, how do you feel looking forward? Do you feel a sense of possibility and, and, and optimism or, yes. or is it all the other way? And it kind of sounds like that's how you felt about doing your, your, your redo year here. Um, uh -huh. so, okay. I, there's so many different directions I want to go right now. Some, <laughs> yeah, I know that, that when we start, uh, talking kind of education philosophy, we'll, we'll go off into the stars. And so just very quickly, um, tell everyone this other job that you ended up taking, the one that your friend pointed you to, uh, what is it? And, and yeah, do you think you're going to stick around for a while or, or do you think you're going to circle back to the classroom? Yeah. Uh, so I work at Panorama Education as their professional learning director of community events. Uh, Panorama Education is like an ed tech company that specializes in social emotional learning. And so we help 
uh, districts and school leaders use data, particularly around social emotional learning to positively impact the culture and climate of their schools. My role is interesting because I get to just do webinars and talking related work uh, that propagates the importance of social emotional learning of what an MTSS or positive behavioral intervention support looks like. And so I get to talk to other education experts in the field and really center the importance of not just academics, but also right social emotional work, mental health. Um, and so it's a really interesting evolution of the work that I've been doing both as a teacher of the year uh, and as an educator who has felt that our schools have not been attendant to the social emotional work uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to, you know, and even to your earlier point about the trepidation and anxiety that kids and teachers feel. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if I'll stay in here long, but I've been enjoying it so far. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you did not become a programmer in this ed tech company like you I don't have the skill set for that so no <laughs> I was wondering if this was a classic case of someone from like the the, the liberal arts being drawn into the a tech company and saying like oh wow the pay is really great here I'll probably never go back to my previous position uh-huh uh -huh. I will I just do the speaking stuff so none of the techie stuff <laughs> all right well I'm glad you're enjoying it for the time being uh, okay so you do think you'll, you'll go back to the classroom at some point. I'm getting the sense that, that you don't have a lot of um, philosophical disagreement with, with what I would call like traditional educational uh, norms, but that you, you, you do have concern about these, these bigger picture equity issues, social emotional learning, kind of concern, what I would consider like classic progressive concern for educating the whole child instead of narrowly educating just to academic standards. Am I on track here, TK? I think that's accurate. Um, and I also think if I am still clinging on to like the vestige of an older model, that is also in part because the other alternatives and solutions that have been proposed aren't really resonating or yeah, maybe there's a limitation in imagination there. Yeah, and something that you wrote to me over email that I found very interesting was that that while there's lots of alternatives out there, a lot of them overemphasize uh, school choice or tech as the as being the center of the solution, or as you wrote, they're highly neoliberal or technocratic that don't address uh, excuse me address inequity um, at its core, and, and so I imagine you're talking about charter schools as being. A, some sort of panacea and, and you're not, you don't have a lot of faith in that. What, what are some other like common alternatives you hear bandied about that, that you don't really believe in? It's not that I don't believe in them, but I also, th you know, I think every sort of solution like TFA would also fall under this as well, right? Is a very realistic market-based solution to uh, a broader systemic problem that exists, right? Um, mm -hmm. But it's not a silver bullet answer, right? TFA was created uh, to address the, the educator shortage crisis, right? Um, but there are a lot of political and policy-based implications to, you know, having folks just in the classroom for two years and then leaving and then the relationship that it has with unions and, and, and all that, right? Um, other solutions that I oftentimes hear, particularly around uh, virtual learning was like, wow, we don't even need to have a traditional school anymore, right? Learning can actually happen. Here are all these wonderful benefits. You can even have these great master teachers who are broadcasting their amazing content to thousands of people to scale, and this is going to revolutionize, right? Um, school and 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 right as, as a person who has a lot of their work in 
who's, who's a lot of formative teaching and, and sort of pedagogical expertise came through the in-person classroom, that felt like a slippery slope and, and, and antithetical to at least what made me a teacher and what made my teaching relationship with students really meaningful, which is sort of that in-person magic and community building that you get to do. Um, and so um, I think when you operate uh, in a capitalist framework, a lot of our solutions tend to be market-based um, and also like staunchly individualistic in that they are not about uh, amplifying like the collective whole. Uh, and so things like school choice uh, and to some degree, I think charters also fall into that of if everyone is kind of doing the things that they can do, given how we live in such an inequitable society, those who can take advantage of those opportunities tend to be more on the socioeconomically privileged sure. end yeah. of the, the spectrum. And yeah. so there's some hesitation there, yeah. Okay, there's about three threads I, I, I want to follow now. <laughs> this is where we start dancing. Uh, I bet that your background, having one foot in the Japanese school system and one foot in the New Jersey public school system, uh, must must weigh in on this question of like individual focus versus um, collective focus. Because from what I heard from you in, in middle school, it, it was too much about rigid collective focus and conformity. And you, you seem to really enjoy the, the individual choice-based, elective-based, uh, a bit more, yeah, hyper-individual focus of the American school system. Uh, oh. Yeah. Uh, and something else, you wrote this excellent piece for Commonwealth Magazine, which which I'll put a link to, um, talking about how these, uh, I, what I would imagine we would call neoliberal uh, reform po policies and schemes are, are really band-aids for for what is at core just a problem of like like vast socioeconomic uh, differences and, and lack of opportunity, or you know just just straight up poverty and 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 trouble at home, and it, it I want to know if this is how you, you currently see um, the challenges to public education. Is is it really about changes in in standards or pedagogy or training teachers differently or is it you know is it hard to solve some of these problems because they have such deeper roots uh i want to address the first point of this sort of i think there's nuance there right to my own experience and whether i describe more towards a collectivist or individualist model as rigid and difficult as the japanese school system was there were some aspects of the communal nature of what makes for a school that i think is so beautiful Right? We would all clean the school together. We would serve each other our lunches. The homeroom was almost sacred in that it was where our best bonds and our friendships mm -hmm. were created. And the teachers themselves took that homeroom ritual incredibly seriously, where there was a great spirit of togetherness that I think and camaraderie that we oftentimes felt. Um, and so there's, I think, again, elements, right, I, I think that are, are, are good uh, to that approach. And likewise, you know, you've heard sort of me echo some of the hesitations that I have to this more individualist approach of you do you, you find your own path, go off the trail, so to speak, right? Um, that <laughs> I'd be happy nice. to, to explore a little bit as well. Um, but, you know, to your point about that article, and uh, um, I think my general critiques that I have around education reform is that, yeah, uh, oftentimes when we think of things that need to be changed in education, policymakers, politicians, uh, education leaders, 
really operationalize the problem at the school building level. And so even an institution like you know, New Bedford, right, the district of New Bedford, the problems were seen as ineffective teaching, uh, you know, low quality curriculum standards, the lack of tech, um, and the need for one-on-one -on -one initiatives. And those might be true, uh, but I think the sort of overarching structure that needs to be attendant to is, yeah, like the inequality that exists, the fact that there aren't employment opportunities, the fact that um, property estates are low and so there's not money going into the schools themselves. And oftentimes when you hear these best solutions to education, um, they tend to just focus on right those band-aid solutions rather than look into those systemic causes. And, and, and so, yeah, I think by and large, I still stand by that critique. Um, you know, being a teacher of the year is also a great example of how we prop up, right, the individual uh, who has overcome certain uh, systemic barriers. Um, and if this guy can do it in this kind of circumstance, in this kind of school community, then there's hope for us. And uh, if I am giving a cynical interpretation of it, and, and there's a hundred different wonderful interpretations I can give about the teacher of the year program, a very grateful for it. And, but a cynical take of it is that oftentimes it can be used and leveraged right as a smokescreen to not addressing actual issues that exist in the school um, by, by really just emphasizing an individual, right? Then, and then ignoring the collective. I feel like when we get into this territory of saying, well, there's only so much that we can accomplish at the, the school level because there are these much more foundational problems. It, the motive is, is to just like throw your hands up in the air and say, well, how do we solve all the foundational problems? And, yeah. and when, when uh, you say that, uh, you know, these reforms that you see being proposed, these alternatives don't address inequity at its core. Like I agree with you. And also where do we go from here? Does this mean you, you leave the, the teaching profession, you leave education altogether and, and try to work in some other field that, that helps you know people have more employment opportunities or have i don't know f families that that are more supportive and nurturing what where, where do you go and and crucially how do you avoid the, the cynicism and and the oh. throwing the hands up in the air that can come when, when you start looking at education through this much wider lens yeah yeah and and then we even we haven't even talked right about political wills and political obstacles that exist to actually attending right things in that sort of collectivist a broader infrastructural structural ways um i don't know i think part of my journey right now uh, blake uh in full transparency is trying to find that hope and optimism um and yeah uh not being the person who is throwing my hands up in the air. I think part of why I had to leave the classroom was because what I thought the answer was, which was more of a community-based understanding to school, um, one that attends and heals both family and community uh, in conjunction right, with the students, um, just oftentimes felt like either there isn't the will or the initiative or just the winds are facing in a different direction. And, and so it's a question that I wish I was smart enough to have an answer to, but <laughs> don't even feel emotionally prepared to, to start tackling if I'm being transparent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty radically honest. Um, 
let, let's talk for a moment about John Taylor Gatto, because you mentioned uh, when we connected over email, I said that your, your story reminded me of John Taylor Gatto, who won New York City Teacher of the Year multiple times and then quit his job. Um, and you responded, uh, you said that you used to teach John Taylor Gatto in one of your classes, one of his essays called The, the Psychopathic School. And so you're familiar yes. with, with Gatto's work, and um, and I'm sure you're, you are familiar with it enough to know that that he he pretty much threw his hands up in the air when it came to um, you know timely reform of public schools, and he threw all of his energies into these much more radical alternatives outside of the, mm. the school system. He was a big mm -hmm. fan of, of of you know very alternative schools, very self directed schools and centers. Uh, he became a big proponent of homeschooling and. Uh, to, to what degree do you feel in alignment with, with John Taylor Gatto and, and the path that he ended up taking? Yes. Okay. Uh, so in, in full transparency, I'm not too familiar with his work outside of the psychopathic school. Okay. Um, and, and I think right, the general thesis there is that the school or the institution of schooling itself lacks this conscience. It's just sort of operating off of this model that has been created. Uh, and it is so anti-life and anti-human in that it's artificial. It's 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 a it's not a community. We're just a network of people, right? Mm -hmm. You have these kids mm -hmm. artificially grouped together, uh, who are the same age, who learn things that are devoid of real-world application, who are just going bell to bell in a way that, like, has never in the history of human existence been the way in which we. Uh, manage people, right? And they're also separated from their family, their community, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of institution of a school uh, is not conducive to making well, meaningful, purpose-driven, self-reliant individuals, right? I, I think that's the core of what he's arguing in that text. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Uh, yeah, and I agree with that. He also had this bit about like, in addition to the institution of school, like TV is the other thing that rules kids' life. And Ooh, I don't know if he's alive right now, but he'd be spitting in his grave if he knew how much they're like dystopian yeah, yeah, things he, have got. He's not alive. He passed away kind of just as, as smartphones were, were cresting and, and you know, gaining total traction over everyone's lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think I think the premise I agree with, uh, and and I now that I am also a teacher of the year, I find like definitely some affinity around the frustrations around yeah the kind of line that we had to tell as, as, as public figures who are emblematic of this institution and, and what's working in the institution, um, and yet also very cognizant as a result of it in terms of what's not working. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if uh, the sort of homeschool approach or, uh, and like, actually, I'd, I'd be really curious to sort of hear your pitch around this more, what I feel, right, this off-trail approach to education being more individualist is. Um, before I share my next thoughts. Uh, so yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about like what alternative education, according to Gatto, and then in some sense, like to you uh, uh, is, so that way I can be more informed in my way of, of responding to it. <laughs> uh, sure, I'd love to. So uh, Gatto, he had this this damning condemnation of, of the school system that practically speaking, said to parents, don't wait around for the school system to be reformed. They've been trying to do it for decades. It'll, it'll surely take decades more, if not forever. And so if you have a kid that is, that's suffering in school, then just see 
how quickly you can you can get them out into an, an environment that is uh, that that's going to actually serve their needs. And he became, I think, so pessimistic about about public school systems, but also private school systems that just mimicked the public schools. That he said, most likely you're going to be able to serve your kids' needs, their individual needs, through something that's more home and family oriented, like homeschooling, or by going to some sort of alternative school. He was a fan of of Montessori schools, also uh, more radical things like Sudbury schools where kids are 100% in control of the curriculum and they even get to, to vote democratically on whether like a teacher will be rehired. They, they're not teachers there, they're, they're staff, but whether mm. they'll be rehired next year. So kind of, you know, radical agency in many ways uh, for these, these young people, but also very individualistic. Um, de definitely, he, he came from this like, early New England, like, you know, small-scale democracy viewpoint. And, and he had a, a, an almost libertarian uh, view of, of how to save American education systems. And it's like private, uh, private alternatives matched with like community and, and family-oriented uh, home education opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and so that was Gatto's take. And, and I've I've loved a lot of what Gatto has written. He's written some kind of like pretty out there stuff too. And he indulged some things that I think we, we would now label conspiracy theories. And, and so it's hard to, to mm. ever get fully uh, behind him. But uh, I've always agreed with his sentiment that it, it's probably a fool's errand to wait around uh, for schools to get reformed. If you have a kid who is, who is right now in the middle of the school system and they're going to be out within 10 years or less, and, and, you know, if you're fortunate, then you can run into great individuals like yourself, TK, other people, whether teachers or administrators, who can make a meaningful impact on your kid's life. You can stumble into some extracurriculars. Essentially, you, you can roll the dice and you can get lucky. But for the rest of us, uh, don't put your faith there. L look into... To, alternatives that that are truly alternative not just little band-aids uh, i that's the best i can do for you on on the mm -hmm. spot here <laughs> no i i love that and i think there's a lot of it that's resonating with me um i think one quick thought is it, it, even sort of this alternative form to a large degree right it is a roll of the dice and alignment to the the way in which you might process and uh the kind of intelligence and uh purpose that you want to seek in, in, in your own learning experience. I think the part that's kind of sticking with me and particularly more uh, with Gatto, right? And his libertarian individualist take on education, right? Uh, and maybe this is the more collectivist side of me that's finding it a little bit hard to truly embrace is, right? Like we have, like the reality, right? Of our society is that we are more atomized than we've ever been before, right? Our society, people aren't meeting eye to eye. We can't even agree on what the facts of the world are. Um, and, and, and I think part of that might be right. That we as a species existentially are facing this collective problem, um, that is only not, that is like being further, uh, exacerbated by this staunchly individualist philosophy, right? Uh, one that is, Hey, it's about me. It's about the path that I'm taking, um, in some ways, right. And when it's politically and institutionally operationalized, like disinvests in the collective. 
Um, and, and there's a lot of examples, I think, of this, but this, this idea that my own journey, my option, my truth is more important than yours. Um, and I think at the practice level, uh, we operate in a reality where only the most privileged, only the most financially well off, only the most who have that cultural linguistic capital are actually positioned, right, to live their lives accordingly to those principles. And so, yeah, I, I, I have wonders of if this radical alternative option is there, to what degree is it a scalable solution to this broader collective societal problem that's there? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. It yeah. almost <laughs> feels like the education version of like the, the self-care thing, right? Like you do you and, and focus on yourself, but we're also still not, I think, addressing the collectivist issue. Yeah, yeah, and and what you said about uh, if everyone needs self care all the time, then then let's start to look at systems and, and not just individuals and how much we can do for ourselves and 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 our direct family members and friends. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and and of course we could take this conversation and go for about thirty more hours. Um, at, <laughs> at this point, that this is good stuff. Um, where do we go from here, TK? Can I? I actually have an interesting. Well, with that being said. Right. Um, I will say that I think the general trajectory, and this is totally anecdotal, um, is 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 that orientation. Um, I oftentimes think about the difference between Gen Z and millennial uh, work ethic and and orientation and attitudes. And um, I'm a millennial, and a lot of my students were uh, Gen Z, and I sort of grew up in this cultural context uh, where. You know, you you're gonna work hard. You're gonna go to college, even at the expense of going into tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Um, the system as a whole, while flawed, is okay and working. Um, and if you work hard enough, right, like you will be able to make that change. Um, and what was very startling, right, uh, being an AP teacher and comparing sort of my own peers uh, during my upbringing with like the AP kids that I taught was like, there did feel this disconnect, this general disinvestment and disillusionment around college, working hard to the point where, right? And I think this is like a, a meme in and of itself, but like Gen Z people find the hustle, culture, work ethic, uh, driven millennial like ethic really cringy. Hmm. Um, and I think it's a natural response, right? For Gen Z, folks to feel that way because they've inherited a world where like that collective agency doesn't exist. Uh, when the pandemic happened, I remember one of my students, Raquel, amazing student, uh, and she said that the pandemic was the first time that she was like proud of adults <laughs> because she saw like our school community come together and distribute foods to family that had additional needs. Uh, and that was the first time she saw people come together to help others in needs, right, in such a visible way. Mm -hmm. And and I was like, well, of course, because what have young millennials and Gen Z witnessed, right, time and time after failure in collective action, be it on climate change, solving inequity, gun violence, right, and now the pandemic, right, and and so in a society where like the 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 like that's so broken uh, in its collective mechanisms i think it's natural as a psychological response for people uh to adopt an inward individualist pragmatic orientation mm -hmm. where you're like i gotta look out for myself first because there isn't this larger collective looking out for our interests 
right? And that's especially true in a capitalist framework. And I'm not saying that that's making things better. I actually feel it's perhaps the opposite way, but that's also the reality. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you took us down this road. I, I think that concern about uh, climate is, I mean, among the teens who I work with, it's just, just like this number one big dark cloud over everything. It should be, yeah. Over everything else. And I, I like the way that you frame this as like a loss of faith in in adults or even humanity, broadly speaking, about the ability to, for like adults to get their shit together and yeah. solve some sort of collective action problem. It's the most difficult problem, you know, of the entire species, of course. And, and so it's, there are reasons that this, this, we haven't made forward progress on this yet, but leading that leading in a psychological way to, to, to checking out and, mm -hmm. uh, and saying why continue to go down this, the standard path, I will just sort of bury myself in my smartphone and the subcultures that I found online that, that yes. speak to me. Uh, I'll, I'll completely check out from the rest of the world. I could see how that exacerbates the, the polarization problem in the country. Yeah. And I, and I want to, to tie some, something you said back to John Taylor Gatto, uh, the students that you had that were proud of your your school for getting together and, and feeding hungry people, like that is so much of the the day to day nuts and bolts stuff that John G um, Gatto did with his middle school students in New York City. He would send mm -hmm. them out in, into the the different boroughs of New York to go like do research about like what's going on in the city, what people need. I, I remember one weird thing that he specifically did was. He had kids go out and and rate different public swimming pools based upon like, <laughs> how good they're that. doing, and 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 I love that stuff because it 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 spoke directly to the interest and the relevance of these kids' lives, but also their lives within the the community of New York City or the specific borough or neighborhood that they're in. And so it was something tangible uh, for the kids to hold on to and to feel like they can make some sort of impact that that would be noticeable to themselves and the people around them. And, yeah. and, and what kind of opportunities, and, and this is a, a sincere question I have for you as, as someone who's really recently been in the classroom, what kind of opportunities do kids, do students have nowadays for, for doing something like that? Some sort of tangible good that, that they recognize and that people around them recognize. Yeah. I mean, especially with, so much red tape around like what I was thinking of, like, what would it take for me to go and negotiate with my administrators to have that kind of learning justified, <laughs> um, especially in a framework, right? Where like so much of there, there's just an additional political pressure and scrutiny around what teachers are teaching. What are they doing? Is it aligned to the common core standards? Do we have time for that? Are you taking away from the test uh, preparation that you should be doing? How relevant is this? Is it worth the logistics? Do you have to think about the busing considerations? Um, and all of those hoops, you know, even when you see the pedagogical value, the cultural responsiveness in, 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 in having a learning experience like that would make someone like me say like, I don't think it's gonna be worth it, uh, which is such a shame. And I think it, it, it does speak to why some educators, um, particularly someone like Gatto, was more in favor of smaller independent school systems that didn't have that degree of bureaucracy mm -hmm. uh, and oversight uh, and red tape that would prevent learning experiences that he knows and I also know to be uh, true. I, I agree with you. Um, I, I want to move towards wrapping up here, 
TK. Uh, yes. One question I'm going to have for you is, uh, what do you look forward to the most when uh, you you do eventually go back to the classroom, which is essentially what what do you miss the most about being in person? But before we get to that question, um, I want to know if you have any other um, big thoughts, beliefs, uh, uh, anything that that's been maybe brewing uh, over the past few really active, really formative years in your life uh, about just the, the purpose of, of education or, or the purpose of teachers in, in general? Like, yeah. do, do you have a, a philosophy that's developing here? And if so, please let me peer into it. <laughs> uh, I will say uh, a working philosophy. Um, I, I do think the purpose of education is to make sure that people are self-sustaining, that they're contributing members of a democratic institution, um, and particularly, right, a sort of democratic society that is diverse. Um, going back to that earlier point of our most pressing issues right now are those collective action problems that are existential in, in nature. Uh, and also, you know, my own experiences, right, our experience of having experienced this global pandemic made me realize that we're only as strong as our weakest link, right? That our success as a species depends on the success of every individual. And I think public education by design was created to ensure that like those fundamentals uh, for the success of every individual exists, right? Of literacy, arithmetic, history, science, right? Um, and, 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 and that we're creating uh, people, right, who have this goal of self-sustainment and are able to contribute and participate in a democracy. Um, and so I think that part of like what school should be for is one. Uh, and then that other part of like the reality of, well, we do live in an inequitable society. And, and so that's where kind of public schools and, and the purpose of education can hopefully fix that inequity. Um, right? Like, not since the Gilded Age, like have we lived in the society where inequity in, in, in all forms, socioeconomic, cultural, educational capital has been so incredibly stark. And, and I think the more inequitable our society is, the worse off we are as a whole. And so if there's any way in which education can address that is by sort of ensuring that success of, the, of every individual, so that the success of the collective exists, right? Um, and in doing so, we're sort of reminded that we're part of this broader whole, that there's a social contract beyond us as individuals. Um, so those are just some loose threads of, of what I'm thinking <laughs> of in terms of the purpose of education. Uh, of, of the yeah. book that you are writing in your head right now. I, of, I, I mean, me I teach I'm a lying. class called... Tell me I'm lying. <laughs> I, I teach a class called uh, Critical Issues in Education at Northeastern University. And, you know, it, it's really interesting, right? Like our philosophy around what we think the purpose of education is, is not only just a individual workshop test, but one that that mirrors where society is at in every single stage. And I think what's interesting, to say the least, is that because of these big systemic shifts that have happened, uh, we are in that period where we get to collectively reflect as to what that purpose should be. Hmm. All right, to to finish this, please, let's, let's take this back to the actual on-the-ground experience of teaching. And and what is it, if you think about going back into the classroom, what is it that, that would draw you there, what, that you would look forward to the most, that, that you would try to get the most out of if you returned to the classroom? Yeah, I will start off by saying I still identify as a teacher, even if I'm not in the classroom. Um, my canvas is not the classroom anymore, but I still am first and foremost always a teacher. Um, 
I don't know if that's a confident answer, but uh, if I were to go back into the classroom and become a teacher again in that traditional sense, uh, it would have to reaffirm like the value of, a, of an in-person community. What I really loved is the work that I get to do with students throughout the course of the year uh, and not just help them actualize academically, but you know, in a personal sense as well and getting to know the different characters and personalities of, of each of the classrooms and seeing a joy that extends beyond just the learning is what made it so valuable for me. Um, other structural things that need to be changed, right, is put less demands on educators, look out for their mental health, freaking pay them more, right, because of mm -hmm. the work that they do so much. And, 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 and so a combination of wanting uh, and chasing that sort of magic that I've described in terms of a community orientation, um, and then having those other uh, more systemic issues uh, when it comes to protecting and uplifting teachers, those need to be addressed uh, before I feel comfortable uh, in going back into the classroom again. Takeru Nagayoshi, thanks for coming on Off Trail Learning. Thank you so much. It was really great talking to you.